My name's Sarah Frick, and you're listening to Are You For Real? A podcast all about being real. Like, really real, not just cute Instagram real. Like, real. Welcome back to Are You For Real? Today, we are talking to a friend of mine, Greg Dixon, who has an incredible story. But before that, we are going to get to our favorite segment of What The Frick? So as always, I poll you guys for questions and then I pull a few and I try to dive into them to the best of my Sarah Frick um, MD knowledge. Um, My MD was actually granted to me by Google. (laughs) Um, Anyway, okay. So here is the question. How to live your dream? Simple steps that have helped you live a life you love. So first... The first thing that came to my mind when I read this was I, I read all of these that you guys send me and I like mull them over and like some of them I, do, I don't even know how to answer and some of them I just send you DMs because I feel like maybe it's too personal or whatever. But um, for this one, it really stuck to me because what helped me live my dream is to stop caring about what other people thought about me. Truly, 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 truly. I'm not just saying that. I, you know, I've talked about this before is like I lived for a really long time in my career, in my life, in relationships with that whole like, do you like me stigma and being a cause for looking good. And so when I, when I was able to just drop that and be like, you know what, I like me and I really love what I'm doing. I was able to take a bigger drive to where I am now. Um, I remember when I was at my last studio and I was considering leaving and doing something on my own and and branding it as myself and putting my name on the door. Like that was so huge for me when the marketing company was like, you really need to you know, put your name on it. I was like, uh-uh, I, I'm not going to put my name on it. People are going to be like, who the hell does Sarah think she is? She put her name on it. So then not only did I put my name on the door, they postered a life-size picture of me on the side of Meeting Street. Um, and you know what? I didn't care. It, w- it was really awesome and fun and it drew great attention and I worked really hard to get my name on that door. Um, so not worrying so much if your dream is going to land with everybody else, right? With the whole committee. It has to be something that you really, really love and you have to get clear with that before you can start any of the processes to actually get there. So, you know, make sure it's something that you're willing to like live and breathe and die for and bleed for and that you're not going to let someone coming in and being like, you're not good enough at that, get in the way of that. Because believe me, there has been times where I have like taught a class and I've poured my heart and soul out and people are like, that didn't, I don't even understand what that was. Or people just saying, yeah, you're, that was a little too much for me. I just really needed a workout, but that's not what I'm doing. Right. I'm my, my whole MO is to give that soul and to, to share that. And even though I want to sit them down and be like, oh no, no, you need it more than the next person. That's not my responsibility. So make sure first and foremost, that you fully are committed to, to being this, to being this thing and living this thing. And the next thing I would suggest, which is probably makes like a little bit more sense is to get out a piece of paper and to write everything down, make a list. What So for me, I'll just speak to fitness. What did I want? I wanted a sweat studio. I wanted a place where people could come, where they could not only get a yoga experience, but they could get a fitness experience, where they could get a soulful experience, where they could get heart work, meditation. Every time they walk in the door, there was somebody that would look them in the eyes and greet them. Um, I wanted that, that to have a feeling behind it. And that's why everything that we do moves with a beat. So I love music so, so much. Like if I hear, like I get in that room 
and this will go back to not, um, you can't care what people think about you. Like I'm, for those of you that don't know me, I'm quite tall (laughs) and pretty lanky and have humongous hair and like have the whitiest white girl moves. But when a beat drops and I'm feeling it, I'm like moving with the whole class because I want them to be able to experience that like personal freedom of just like go in, go all the way in. So that was important to us too, to have like really great music. Um, for there to be a cohesiveness with the way that it even looked when you walked in the door. So writing everything down is really, really helpful because you can go back over that list and see what you hit, what you didn't hit necessarily. Um, Also with that, making sure that as you do this, that you're taking care of yourself in it too. So I know I said, you got to live it, you got to breathe it, you got to die for it, all of that as well. There is a level of burnout sometimes, even on things you absolutely love. So the past, um, about a week or so ago, my husband said to me, he's like, we have been giving so much of ourselves to our business. John is extremely busy as well. He's a builder in town. And I've been spending a lot of time um, at the new studio and just working and creating. He's like, we need to, let's, let's go at it. Let's take our kids on a vacation for eight days. And I was like paralyzed. I was like, eight days? Oh my God, the studio is going to just die without me. Well, it didn't die. It actually did great. <laughs> and I had the best time. I was so anxious and nervous to go. Truly I was like, I was like, I told my head girls in charge. I was like, listen, I'll have my phone. Just call me, blah, blah, blah. They're like, we're not bothering you. I was like, you better call me. Um, and I got to enjoy my children without having to get up and to do the schlep and to like yell at them, to yell at two-year-olds to hurry up because I needed to be somewhere. Right. So it was so nice to like go be, enjoy, rest. I mean, I think my whole family slept till almost eight o'clock every day, which is like unheard of in our house. Um, and it was really just lovely just to chill and to be, and to make sure that, you know, when I came back to work that I was really excited and ready to be there. Um, another simple step is to, if, if you're going to hire someone to hire someone that is as passionate about it as you are, I hire for the most part, even people that don't teach for me that are in my leadership team, people that are jazzed about fitness, right? So if you're running like an art gallery, you don't want to hire someone that like has never heard of Picasso, right? You want to hire people that are like, love the brand. Nobody's going to love anything like you do. So that's another thing. Like don't have that expectation. I have friends. I hear friends all over the place. I remember I used to work for this studio too. And it was like, nobody loves it like I do. Well, nobody is going to, nobody's going to love your baby. Nobody thinks your baby's as cute as you do. Okay. Just so you know, (laughs) but nobody's going to love it like you do. And that's okay. That's why it's your baby. That's why it's your baby. But there can be like aunts and uncles that want to hold your baby and support your baby and will take care of your baby, but also want to go home at the end of the day and have their own babies. So, you know, remember that too, when hiring people, you want to hire like-minded, really good people. And I think for me as well, just like the biggest part about it is to have fun in it. And that sounds so like good housekeeping magazine, like have fun. Um, There's nothing wrong with good housekeeping magazine. Sorry, but enjoy what you're doing. If you're like, like this, what this said, how to live your dream. If you, it's your dream, have fun doing it. If all of a sudden you start hating it, it's not your dream anymore. Right? So have fun in it, have an attitude that you can disconnect so you don't get totally burnt out. Bring good people around with you. Don't be scared to like try something new or to really put yourself out there in a huge big platform where some people are going to go, who does she think she is or who does he think he is? Because you know what? Those aren't your people. So go and blow it up and have fun doing it. 
I also think a big part of living your dream is supporting other people living their dreams too. So like being supportive in your community and loving other people, women, men, whoever it is. Like currently there's this young woman in town. She's only 26 and she created this amazing product called Blender Bombs. They actually even have these smoothie bars called um, Hustle um, and their smoothies are delish. But you know, I'm super stoked for her because she's a a good bit younger than me. And she is really hustling and making this happen and giving our community something that is going to give them health and wellness. And it's a really easy, easy bite on the go, or you can make your own smoothie at home. Um, I actually have a discount code. It's 10% off. Um, it's Sarah with an H 10, and you can use it on blenderbobs.com. Okay, guys, we're about to sit down and talk to Greg and I'm really excited for you guys to meet Greg. I have seen Greg through so many transitions in his life. Um, he has been in the military. He has had addiction issues. He is now sober and he is going to tell us his whole incredible story. So go ahead, get your seat, grab your tissue and let's go. All right, guys, we are just sitting down here with Greg and, um, first of all, thank you for being here. I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate it. Um, Greg's going to tell us a little bit about how we first met. Yeah, so I first came in contact with Sarah uh, when she was teaching at Blue Turtle um, via my um, friend and ex-girlfriend Sarah, another Sarah, uh, in about 2006. Sarah J. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that was the kind of first interaction, and then, you know, um, just our, uh, just kind of started really getting close to the practice uh, at Charleston Power and then obviously onto the work. So, yeah. Good. So um, just because I have to plug my business, everything right. I do. That's what I was <laughs> <out>. <laughs> No, yeah. no. Tell, okay, so talk about, because you are pretty consistent and you have a really strong practice. What is it do for you at this point in your life? And we'll go yeah. all the way back to, but we can start here. Definitely. Um, I think the practice of yoga and what's the works offers is not only an outlet to come in and grind, but really a chance to really, um, in a, in a empirical setting, just step outside of your comfort zone and, you know, and, and, and face a challenge kind of head on. Um, there's not a whole lot of, uh, men that come to your classes and that alone is kind of frightening, <laughs> uh, especially cause it's a smoke session. And, um, so, after just constantly and repetitively coming, you know, a lot of your teachers and yourself uh, started talking about, you know, this off the mat practice situation. And I was thinking, well, let me like, you know, delve into that a little bit further. Like, what does that mean? And I started kind of following some of the teachers on the on the gram and listening to what they had to say about that. And you're only practicing one hour a day, but the rest of the time, you know, you have an opportunity to really uh, put use into your breath, into your focus, into your intention, and whatever else that, you know, comes up. Um, so, you know, I just found, I found, a, I found a piece with it that didn't exist in a weight room or on a track or in a trail. Um, and I just kind of, you know, went with it after I started feeling that. So um, it's been great. Good. I'm grateful for it. Well, we love having you in there. Greg worked out next to me yesterday, and he works out like a machine. <laughs> um, I 
I just, yeah. If you don't know Greg, he's in really great shape. So you're doing doing good. Yeah, um, you. So let's talk a little bit about your story. Yep. Just go wherever you want to start cool. and let's go. So I enlisted in the United States Marine Corps in 2003 at the age of 17. My mom had to sign uh, the parental consent. Uh, uh, my dad was kind of not for that at the time. But... Uh, she knew that that's what I wanted to do, and that's where I wanted to go. There was no change in my mind. So uh, long story short, I went to boot camp um, down in Paris Island, graduated in 2003, then picked an MOS that was going to lead me uh, to a place where I would see some heavy fighting. Uh, Can you tell us what an MOS is? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Sorry. I got to do that. It's a a military occupation specialty. So it's your job, essentially. I picked a job that was infantry. And what that carries is a um, responsibility to you are the main effort of the United States military to fight the enemy that we're charged to fight with. So um, moving forward, um, I got orders in 2004 to go to 29 Palms, California, to a unit called 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, or 3-7 for short, as I'll refer to them. And I got there in February, just after Valentine's Day, and we left for Iraq about two weeks later. So um, I was work. I was going into that situation with very little training. Uh, boot camp and School of Infantry at the time was very outdated uh, as far as the training went. They weren't really focused so much on um, urban warfare, which is the kind of combat that we would see a lot in uh, in Iraq. And so um, we got to Iraq in February, and we took over a small city on the Syrian border called Huseba, and it was in like kind of the a county like uh, Al Qaim, or uh, in the province was known as Al Ambar. Um, at that point in time, the invasion had already occurred, and the Al Qaeda insurgency really started to gain a foothold in western Iraq and Al Ambar. And what an insurgency kind of looks like is, you know, a group of uh, terrorists um, have a, a, an agenda, and they basically kind of blend into a local population. Uh, so it wasn't like I knew exactly who I was fighting. Um, we didn't really know a whole lot about that kind of information. And as a Marine grunt, uh, we're not really privy to a lot of that stuff. It's more of like some guy says, hey, walk down this fucking street and you do it. And you go to the house that you're supposed to go to and you do your job there, whatever that might be. Um, it was a very kinetic environment, meaning uh, we were in contact quite a bit. And I'll kind of get into that a little bit more. So um, early on in March, I remember um, was probably one of the first times that I had experienced any sort of uh, combat activity against myself. Um, we were on a foot patrol out in the city, and that's how we kind of operated. We, we didn't have vehicles. Uh, we would just walk in uh, tactical columns or formations, and we would basically do what they call movement to contacts, or just kind of wait for somebody to fucking shoot us or blow us up and then Jesus. try to fucking blow them up back. You're still 17 at this point? At this point, I'm 18. Just turned, no, sorry, 19. Just turned 19. So I know we're going to get into all this, but were you, like, scared? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really was, and especially... Um, I mean, you're going to make me start crying. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, 
You know, and that's the thing is coming into, uh, out of the Marines, I was, I had this like, um, I had this person, this persona that I was invincible and nobody could fucking touch me. And I was just like, you know, United States Marine. And that's what the, and I love that gun club more than anything and what it's given me, but that's how, that's what it's supposed to do. You know, you don't want guys coming out of that shit second guessing themselves. Right. So moving into that, um, I felt like that confidence was there where, fuck it, I'm not, you know, I'm not scared. I'm up here with my other brothers. You know, we're all doing it. Um, that fear kind of exists, but it exists in a place that's not really observable on the outside um, until something fucked up happens. Yeah. Um, so just in about mid-March or so, um, I can't remember the exact date, uh, we were on a foot patrol and we were in the heart of the city moving um, on the west side of, a, on the, excuse me, on the north side of a graveyard and uh, in this really kind of narrow alley. And um, I was about, I was in the rear of the patrol. Um, my fire team leader was a guy named Justin Bunce. He was directly in front of me. And what that means is he was my boss. He was like my supervisor. This guy had done the invasion. He was a fucking Marine that I looked up to that I thought, holy shit, I'm glad that's the guy that I got to follow. Right, you know, right. like, I'm glad that's him. Yep. Um, and we're moving through this alley and um, the fucking ground blows up in front of me. And um, at that point in time, there was just, uh, it, there was a paralyzing it was paralyzing, a fear that just overcame my body as far as, like, I don't want to take another fucking step or that's going to happen to me. Um, but it was really difficult to explain, but the only thing I th can think of, like, right when that moment happened, I thought, like, A, I want my fucking mom. I didn't sign up for this shit. Um, this is, uh, this wasn't in the training, um, now that invincibility is, goes away. You're talking to two moms right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want, I, yeah, that's where I wanted to go. Yeah. I wanted my mama and I was 18 in a Marine. And, um, then you, you, you start to, your training overcomes your body and you, you start the love that I have for my platoon mates and my teammates and the guys in my squad is what allowed me to like move. And that paralyzing fear was mitigated by just the love I have for like mm -hmm. my fellow Marines. Right. Um, that's the only way I can ever describe it because I didn't fucking want to do it at that point. Um, that was extremely difficult to deal with and see. And Justin thankfully survived. He had a severe tra traumatic brain injury. Um, you know, the gory details of clear fluid coming out of his mm. nose and his head. And it was really, uh, kind of just nothing that I'd ever planned on or wasn't sure what it was like. And then moving forward, um, activity started to really, that was earlier. That was the first month and activity just started. Month one. Month one. Do you know how long you're there when you go? Seven to eight months, <clears throat> um, and we knew we had it. We were we were, we had it in for us. Um, activity started to pick up. 
uh, more of these improvised explosive devices were finding their way in the roads that we would walk on and you would just walk and Marines would just blow up. And, um, in April, early April is probably one of the deadliest months in Iraq since the whole situation started. What year was this? 2004. Okay. And, uh, you know, Chris Wasser, we were on a foot patrol um, out in the heart of the city again, and uh, one of my uh, sister platoons was moving to our flank in the same direction, and an explosion occurred. And we heard that, uh, and we responded about, we were only about a block and a half away from them, so we responded to the scene. Um, and when we got there, it was just, uh, it was, it was, it was bad. Um, Chris was down. He was obviously the priority casualty. You know, his leg was missing. His hands were missing. Um, his the whole his whole body didn't look like it had a lot in him. Um, two of my friends that I had went through the initial boot camp and school of infantry training with were also badly injured. Um, Rumley and Vega. Um, Vega's hand was stuck on a rocket he was carrying, and uh, Rumley's leg was in a bad shape. Uh, I was able to kind of put a tourniquet on that, and I remember looking up and seeing this, like, 20-year-old Navy corpsman uh, named Doc Heydrich working on Chris, and this guy, and our Navy corpsmen are like our medics Mm -hmm. in the Marine Corps because Marines aren't smart enough to have medics, so we have to get them from the Navy. And uh, uh, Doc Heydrich was cutting a hole in this kid's throat Mm. to do a field tracheotomy. And that's like shit that like some surgeons can't do. He's like a 20 year old. Yeah. Under those circumstances that, you know, an IED just went off and now we're starting to receive gunfire (sighs) in the street. And this guy's like trying to blow up his friend's lungs and keep him alive long enough until his you know, this helicopter gets there. And at that point, I was just like, holy shit, like this, like, that's fucking crazy to see. Yeah, um, that's that insane. These kind of guys will, will go that far yeah. for me if that happened to me. And that kind of gave me a level of comfort. But it wasn't until later that evening or a couple, a couple days later, I'm sorry, that I remember sitting on this rooftop. This is like another profound kind of just moment that I had um, that sticks close to me. And uh, just kind of reflecting, we were out in the city again, and we would take over a house and set up a security on the roof and basically stay there through the night and wait to see if anybody would come fight us or not. And um, I remember looking out and just, uh, and I don't know for people that have had this experience, um, but the level of peace that came over me, I just told God, thank you. I didn't think I was going to make it out of that city. Uh, I just made peace with him and I thanked him for my mom and I thanked him for my dad and my sisters and my family. And that if something happened to me, just let them be taken care of. And then I, uh, and then at that point I felt like I was okay to die, mm-hmm. and I think part of me on the inside, after some of the um, experiences we had had, had started to just numb 
up. I don't want to say they were dead. They were just numb. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a common experience or common um, feeling for people that have been through that sort of trauma. Um, and so, you know, I went through the rest of that deployment and it got a lot worse in April. We lost um, on April 17th. We had five Marines killed in a house. And like I said, urban fighting and urban combat is like the dirtiest of all the combats because the rat goes in a hole and you got to fucking go in and get them out. And that's a really, really uh, dangerous place to be inside of a house with a guy or or some dudes that don't really care about dying. And so you have to go there yourself in some ways. Um, And did you have to do that stuff? Yeah, yeah. We, on April 17th, we went through um, my unit, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, were engaged in the known as the Battle of Huseba, and it was about a 17 to 20-hour firefight that lasted from the early morning to late in the evening, and we had five Marines, including my company commander, who's a captain, and captains aren't necessarily supposed to be out there with the guys fighting in the street like this. And these all, all these Marines died. It was, um, and from that situation, our unit developed a, um, a quote that was on our shirts that said, no man afraid to die should ever leave the charge. Mm-hmm. And as I have grown, I don't like that quote itself isn't like, it's like the proverbial not die or man, but no person afraid to take a chance yeah, or yeah, die yeah, totally. should leave like fucking go and do something man like what who cares if you fail at it like this is what if you're a leader and you're a natural leader we talk a lot about failure and how leaders have failed but you know take that fucking chance and go do it um so that is like stuck with me for a long time and it was just a really impossible situation in that city at the time uh, we weren't really quite prepared for what we had, but the Marines dealt with it extremely professionally. Um, you would think that, you know, these uh, grunts f- armed to the teeth would just go out and commit all kinds of atrocities. Mm-hmm. And the professionalism that I saw from my my brothers that were like barely old enough to drink or not right. to restrain themselves in the face of some asshole standing in front of you that may have just blown your brother up but doesn't have any sort of um, identification on him that you can fucking kill him, mm-hmm. right? And they're and you're like, I know you're bad, but I know I have rules, and I'm not going there because that makes me like you. Um, so to see that kind of um, transpire was really just something that gave me some really good... Uh, um, just peace, peace of mind that I was at the right place with the right group of dudes. Right. And, uh, and then, you know, after that one was over, we lost probably, I think, 15 to 17 guys. Um, and then we went back in 2005 to Ramadi, and I was a sniper at that point. So, so you came yeah. home between these two? Yeah, I came, came back that, to the United Can you States. talk about what it's like to come back? Because just like you telling that experience to me, like yeah. it sounds, and this is so lame to even say, uh, but it's like sounds like a movie. Yeah. Like, like you watch it and then like you leave the movie theater and you're like, people are like playing video games. You're just going to the bathroom and someone's filling up a Coke. You know what I mean? It just almost seems like unreal to me to how do you reenter a, your regular life? 
Right. Um, at that point, it wasn't very much. It was very mechanical on my end because I knew I was still an active duty United States Marine. Like when I came back, I was kind of and I just have the best family and network back home in Kentucky that I could ever ask for. And these kind of people just like put you on a pedestal to an extent. And, you know, people were still very much pro-war at that point in the mm-hmm. conflict and, you know, all that. And uh, I didn't really take any of, I don't, I didn't really try to take any of that home. I did go to jail when I was home. For You're like, what's this place? Drunking in public <laughs> and, uh, and that was kind of like, you know, it was just kind of like, ah, oh, you're okay. You're, you're, you're a war, you're a Marine combat war vet. Like nobody, like. We're not going to be too concerned about that. Uh, you were just peeing in a bar. <laughs> and so, Sounds like material. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm very. There's probably a lot more similarities than I'd like to admit between me and uh, you know adolescent children. Um, so uh, I remember um, just being at a football game with my best friend in high school, and him kind of being like, "So what? what like, how was it?" And I remember kind of telling him a little bit, but I remember just kind of seeing his face uh, just be like, what? And me just being like, oh, this is like shit. I shouldn't say to people that don't know what the fuck I just went through. Uh, So I just would pull back and just let it go on autopilot. Um, And the crazy thing is, is like that wasn't even, I still had fucking three more years left in the gun club. So when we went back and I went and we, we knew we were going to Ramadi, Iraq in 05, and that was just Time Magazine and every news agency in the country said Ramadi's the most dangerous place in the whole world. Fallujah had just been cleared in late 04, and now Ramadi um, was really a really dangerous spot that Al-Qaeda had a foothold in, and we were going to go in there and fucking kill them. Already knowing what I know now and having like a specialized skill as being like a sniper and working in a scout sniper platoon, um, I was excited to get out there because the guys like we like the guys I was with were like some of the best in our battalion. And um, I felt very comfortable about the men I was going overseas with at that point. Um, I was ready to. Uh, I was ready to work and do it. Um, and and they the, pump you, they like pump you up on before you go too, right? They do to an extent. The Marine Corps has like, and that's what's interesting about being a sniper in my unit that like, there's a lot of bullshit that the Marine Corps kind of throws out there to like get guys psyched up and motivated. You know, we had like a little bit of a different kind of outlook, I think. Um, we knew that we just had to be, we carried ourselves in a, in a, in a, in a just different manner, I think, than some of the other fellas. Uh, when we got there, the first day we were there, we took a, like a KIA, um, Swanberg was standing outside of it, killed in action. Okay. Um, so yeah, like the first day we arrived in Ramadi, uh, Shane Swanberg was, you know, hit by a rocket and, you know, killed in action. And that was just like, welcome to the city that, Mm. you know. It's crushed his souls for the last like four years. Um, and then our first mission out 
side the wire, our first active insert, we were going out with India Company, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, and another Marine was killed on that one. We hit an IED at a fire at Firecracker, which is an intersection that we called. Uh, and so I think is like that kind of shit started to happen. My uh, level of like feeling towards it all was very just kind of removed and uh, compartmentalized to a place that I didn't know where it was. I knew it was probably there and I'll deal with it eventually, but I didn't know when. And so, uh, you know, that it was a really good deployment, uh, as far as like a hunting ground for me and Mm -hmm. my team. Uh, we hunted very well there. Uh, my best friend, J.R. Spears was killed on that deployment. And that was probably the low point for us. Um, for me, especially, um, Jr. was uh, was shot in the face by a sniper, um, and that really was something that um, kind of was very hard for me to kind of process. And I remember after hearing the news about Jr.'s death, laying in bed that night, and I closed my eyes, and he came to me in a dream and he just said, Hey man, like, I'll see you. I'll see you later or something. It was like, we fist bumped and it was it. And I was like, what the fuck was that? And I've never, that's never happened before. Um, since then, but it was just like, he was checking out. Um, so moving forward, like we get out of Ramadi, uh, in early 2006, I believe, or mid 2006. And, uh, Now it's like my time in the Marine Corps is coming to an end. I'm trying to make other plans and figure out what I want to do. And I knew that I was probably done with all the deploying and combat shit that I could. How does that work? I know nothing, Mm -hmm. obviously. So like you have a time that you're there and then that's it. Yeah. So I had a four year enlistment. And so I went in in 03. So in 2007, that enlistment time is over. Okay. So at that that Did point. you ever get injured while you were in it? Uh, no, no. Somehow I didn't, and I could have. Yeah, there's. I don't know. I don't I, know how. Honestly, that's, that's with yeah. buns blown up in front of me and the high back behind me where the marine died in Ramadi, and then there's been times I've walked and stood on top of IEDs because they. I don't know why. I just I didn't know they were there. Obviously, or I wouldn't have been standing on fucking top of them. Mm-hmm. But they didn't blow up. Um, I, there's just so many of those moments that I just don't even. It's like cats with nine lives, and those are no longer. I don't even know where that where I'm at now. Yeah. Um. So when I like wanted to get out, it was more so of like, okay, well, what's the plan? And I knew I wanted to play college football. My best friend that was killed in Ramadi Jr. had played like had those kind of same dreams. We had talked about it, and I got into a a, a school back in Northern Kentucky. Thomas More College at the time, um, now university, and I went and uh, became a college student in 07, was out of the Marine Corps in July of 07, and in August was in class. Um, that was, um, when I came home, that's where a lot of the shit that, uh, that had manifested over the years in my you know, my brain and my conscience started to really started to come up a little bit. And it wasn't probably until 2008 or 2009 that it was starting to really kind of control me. Um, 
a lot of the kids on my football team and they had known my story about being a Marine and now coming to college and they were like, you know, this guy's the fucking toughest dude, you know, ever. You are. (laughs) And I'm like home fucking crying in my bedroom at night uh, because I just don't know why I'm here and why they're not. And they were so much better than me and I'm a fucking turd and they're great and tons of survivor's guilt, um, mortal injury, um, post-traumatic stress, I would be awake all night and try to go into practice the next day and have a smile on my face um, and put my mask on and just be like, yeah, man, whatever, like, whatever you fucking need, coach. But like, just broken on the inside. And really the only person that kind of like noticed it that ever said anything was my mom. Mm-hmm. And she was like, hey, dude, like, what the fuck? And I would just, I remember, like, hugging her and just being like, I'm fucked up. I don't know what's what's wrong with me. Um, And does the military support any of that? At that time, they did not really do a great job of offering us any kind of support. So they take you when you're 17 and they just kind of throw you back in. Throw you back in, push you through the ringer a little bit. Um, The VA was something in post-traumatic stress still had like a stigma that uh, was viewed as weakness Mm. um, and like all this shit, right? And so um, I remember I would, I would, I was drinking a lot. I started using Oxycontin, cocaine and weed and um, just drinking pretty heavily. I, I got two DUIs while I was in college. I was arrested two other times for, you know, disorderly conducts and fighting in bars. And um, I was just trying to suppress all the real feelings that existed and just how much I was hurt in my heart for what had happened and what I what what my friends had to go through and where their families were. Facebook was tight. So I'm looking at these kids growing up, like Matt Conley's daughter and son, like Matt Conley's family and, 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 and JR's sisters online. And I'm just thinking, oh my God, like they're fucking... And I just was really hurt inside because of that. Um, the worst was probably like in 2009. Um, I had ended a relationship... I didn't end it, she said, for rightful reasons. But um, I I came home back to northern Kentucky, and I remember, um, like, loading a shotgun and and just kind of being like, all right, fuck it. Like, I remember the thought of I'm, I'm... I don't really like I don't have anything left on the inside to contribute anymore. And so it just didn't really matter that this these actions were even occurring. And uh, my sister, who was a lot younger than I was, she's 14 years or 13 years younger, was in her bedroom and began to like cry or call for mom or something. And it kind of like joked me a little bit out of this like feeling I was in and I thought holy shit like I can't do this here (laughs) mom's gonna clean my brains up off my wall like that's fucked um and I just kind of thought like okay if this is an option where does this happen at things like that and um 
I started to see somebody at that point. I went and, you know, kind of told my mom, like, I think I'm ready to go talk to, you know, uh, somebody that knows a little bit more about this. Um, and that was like kind of the first level of therapy I went through. And it was, uh, it was, it helped me kind of get out a little bit. Um, but then I graduate from college and, uh, here I'm like, what do we do? Like, let's go to Afghanistan and fight (laughs) as a fucking, you know, so as a contractor, so I went to Afghanistan. Can you talk about that? Because I don't understand that. <laughs> so I was paid by the U.S. government to, my company was paid and I was paid by them, by the U.S. government to go over and pri- provide a service. So you're um, not in the military at this no, point? No, I'm like civilian guy, but I'm still on the street. I got a gun. I'm armed. I'm facing the enemy. Um, I'm not necessarily offensive in nature where I'm going out and actively seeking a fight. I was more of a, in a protective role of like a U.S. personnel, some government employee. And, um, I worked in a very like small team way out in what I call Indian country. Um, where like the Taliban had a footprint near Pakistan. I was out there for, like three years. Where and do then you live? I lived on a military base at that point. Okay. So, but you were there for three years. Yeah. Did you come home at all? I come home every um, 120 days for oh, 30 yeah. days. So I would work like 90 to 120 days, and then I come home for 30 days, and then I go back to Afghanistan, and I did that for just over three or four years. So uh, there was like very little breaks. Uh, the money was really good. And uh, I got to be in an environment where I felt like my purpose was meaningful again. Um, And then, you know, we started having incidences happen as far as like um, in April. uh, No, excuse me, in July, I think Jamie Leonard, who was a a female. She was 39. She was a Marine Corps, sorry, an Army major, West Point grad. Um, they were out on this Afghan Kandak site, which is like an Afghan army base. And, uh, this guy basically just opened up fire into the crowd of soldiers. I wasn't out there when that occurred. And, but I heard the gunshots and I triaged it with my team and my medics. I had two really good paramedics on my team at that point. And Jamie was my patient, uh, along with, uh, this army medic named Derek and, we, that was the first time I ever had to treat a female that, uh, um, that had been ever, uh, and she had a gunshot wound through her, through her, uh, ribs and it came out her back. Uh, and I'd never seen somebody fight so hard for their life. Um, she we, you know, we started chest compressions. We exposed her. That felt really wrong. I didn't know why it felt wrong, um, but it was something that needed to be done. Um, she 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 had a it was in the vital area. She wasn't gonna live no matter what. We did. Now I see that. Um, so Jamie perished, and that kind of played a that kind of really stuck with me because I. Where the Marine Corps, at least you come back and you're with your friends. About two weeks later, I'm on a Delta flight out of Dubai back to, you know, D.C. and I'm like... have, like, like a community. No, what the fuck? Um, It's like, how do you... I don't... I'm not trying to interrupt you, but, like, I just... How do you even, like, 
talk to other people or do you, is that why you shut it off? Because you're like, like it would almost to me be frustrating to try to be like, someone's like, Oh, what you been up to? And like, you start this <laughs> and people are like, what? Like, you're like, you don't even fucking have any idea. What my yeah. life is like, yeah, it was difficult. Um, in a lot of ways to communicate to anybody, I really started kind of hanging out with women mm-hmm. <laughs> because they didn't care about Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, I was around, like I would go back and I would call like, my girlfriend's Lauren and Katie and be like, Hey, you guys want to hang out? My buddies are like, dude, what the fuck? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, you guys like, are like, Hey, how was it? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But they're like, Oh my God, like yeah. what the fuck ever. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, you know, and then, yeah, you definitely, there's, I, yeah, there's nothing like, I know it sounds crazy to say, and for me to just sit down next to somebody that has no kind of, perspective on that environment and explain that kind of stuff to them. And I just, you know, I wouldn't even go there a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I prided myself at that point on being like a silent professional and just having, you know, what I happened there is there and now I'm back here and that's how I deal with it. That's why they pay me the money they do. Right. Um, on December 27th, we had a suicide bomber blow up at my front gate and killed three guys. And, at that point, I had seen so much shit that, like, uh, it wasn't even, like, rapping, you know, it wasn't even, I wasn't even, like, I wasn't even phased by it, which was the sad part about the whole thing, right. that it didn't even <laughs> fuck me up. And it was probably the most devastating thing that I had actually had to witness um, as far as the mechanisms of injury from that blast. And so... Um, I, the contract ended and I go home and I'm back in South Carolina now in Charleston. And at this point I'm starting to drink and Coke and we like every day. Uh, it's habitual. Um, I had a DUI right after I got back from my third one. Uh, there was nothing that the court could do to me that was sufficient punishment because the way I, my perspective in contrast to their punishment, I was like, I don't fucking care compared to like, at least I'm not fucking wrapped around the axle of a vehicle. Like I'm not dead. Right. So right. I don't give a right. shit. Like, what do I care for? Do they take that kind of stuff into consideration? Not that, you know, you, you know, um, punishable obviously, but no, no, I think at certain times, I think if you, um, I think if you articulate it enough to the right people, they can, mm-hmm. um, in my case, I didn't articulate it at all because I didn't want to use it as, uh, like, I didn't think it was a valid reason for me to be like, hey, maybe you should give me a shot here, judge, because I fucking, you know, signed up to be a Marine. All that was my choice, and now this is the consequences that, uh, the stuff that had occurred from it. Um, In 2000, and where my path started to kind of change was around 2015. Like I said, in January, I had gotten a DUI. I just turned 30. Um, in February, I was on my way home from Atlanta, and there was a, I, I was visiting a teammate, and I had my medic bag with me because his kids like that Call of Duty shit, and they were all about that, like all my stuff. And so I had that with me, and this horrible traffic accident had occurred, and I uh, responded. I was like, it literally happened right in front of me. And there was an RV flipped upside down on the side of 26. And I remember getting out of the truck 
and just being like, yeah, fuck you, man. Like, really? Like, I'm home, and yeah. you're still throwing this shit at me. And I went down there, and there was a geriatric male. Uh, there was a black black woman, 27 years old, in her car, and she was dead. Mm-hmm. I didn't even have to work her. And then when I got down to the RV, uh, this this male was he was the only one alive. Um, he was still making sounds, and he was bleeding out of his femoral artery. Uh, I went around to the side to triage his passenger, and that was his wife, and she was dead. And so I went back to him, and um, I cut him out of the vehicle and pulled him out and put a tourniquet on his leg, and he had a bilateral chest compression, so I hit him with a needle decompression. Um, this is like in Orangeburg County, right? So it's mm-hmm. bumfuck, and it took EMS quite some time <laughs> to get Sorry if there. you're from Orangeburg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... Uh, um, it just took first responders quite a while to get there, rightfully so. And they landed air about an hour later. Uh, he was, he, I knew he was fading quickly. Um, just a caveat, I don't know if you have to put this in there, but this gal came down to also help out with the triage. She was a nurse and we had matched on Tinder. <laughs> but I <laughs> yes, never Yes, you talked. definitely have to put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we knew each other like, oh. Catherine, she's like, Greg, I'm like, fancy seeing yeah. New Year's. I'm like, chest compressions. I'm like, you mind doing a little vital action? She's like, Hilarious. No problem. I'm like, cool. So, uh, yeah, we get this fella, um, never seen her since, um, get this fella loaded up and yeah, he ended up dying on the scene. So now I'm driving all the way back to Folly Beach and uh, still got this guy's blood all over my hands and in my on my jeans and in my clothes and um, when I got home that night, I tried to call some people that I thought could have helped me, and it wasn't like their fault. They were like they were an answer, like they were out of the country or somewhere else. And I went down and I got uh, I got fucking super hammered at Folly Girl, and um, on the way home, the cab driver had asked me how my day was, and I kind of told him and. You know, he's like, yeah, you should buy a bag of, get some Coke. And I'm like, fucking absolutely. Let's go do that. So I went and bought an eight ball and uh, I got arrested for it that night. So um, now I'm sitting in jail the next morning with this lady's, this guy's blood all over me still. Cops are like, did you kill somebody? And I'm like, yeah, I fucking killed somebody, man. It's fucking about a 60-year-old male up in Orangeburg yeah. because I didn't save his fucking life, mm-hmm. you know? And they're like, like, what? Like, nobody's really kind of understanding it. I don't even give a fuck about the charge. I'm like, yeah, cool. Sounds good. At least I knew I bought real cocaine because they <laughs> tested it. And so um, I'm like, yeah. Uh, well, so even, like, after that was really kind of even further of a downhill spiral for me as far as like how much I would drink and use. Um, and it was more so of a way to just, I was coping at that point and just trying to barely hang on. And my toughness kind of had faded, but like I had made this money overseas and I had used that to be like, that's what I'm living behind right now. All these things that I can do. And, uh, that was just another tool I had that I would put in front of people to like screen them from the pain and guilt that I had on my inside. And, um, 
it wasn't until all that went away. There's no other way to explain it. And I kind of wanted it to. And my mom and my dad are like, man, you got to do something with all this. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll do something. And I was like, fuck, get rid of it Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it's killing me. Yeah. And so luckily. So were you able to bail yourself out for all that stuff? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still faced, uh, they gave me a year probation, um, and they put me in some, they were like, you know, you go to jail if, uh, you know, if you fuck up on probation and I'm looking at the judge and I remember and like, your year probation, your punishment and like, I don't fucking care about that lady. I don't think you understand like what's going on here. Like you can throw whatever you want at me. Like it ain't. It doesn't matter, and it's not gonna make me stop. Doing it didn't what I scare do. you. It didn't scare me one bit. Yeah. Um, what did was I started. I I knew I needed to start working again. It had been about a year and a half at that point. We're in like 2016 of February, and uh, I got a job at a lumber yard in North Charleston, and I was just a really toxic work environment for me. Um, I was using with the other employees. Um, there was a Air Force base nearby, so you know airplanes are constantly flying over. Um, I I was the lumber and timber falling all around the yard, and uh, I was fucking whacked out of my mind, either from the dope or just from the anxiety and mm-hmm. stress of you know PTSD and whatnot, and. Um, I was like, I'm going to fucking kill somebody or kill, kill myself here yeah. if yeah, I yeah, stay yeah. any longer. And I remember it was uh, March 1st, and I got off at Forklift, <laughs> and I walked into HR there, and there was this sweet lady named Donna. And I said, I need to go to the hospital, like, now. And she just looked at my face and was like, are you, like, she, like, just wait. She went and got the the, pre- the CEO, the president of that branch, Dwayne, and um, he's like, what do you need me to do? And I'm like, you got to take me to the VA, like, yeah. right now. Yeah. So um, I called my dad and said, hey, man, I'm on my way to the hospital. I don't know what the fuck's happening to me, but I'm going to, like, people are going to get hurt, and I'm going to hurt myself. Like, I was just in that place, and my dad's like, I'm on a flight. Like, done. I'm mm-hmm. there. And so he flew on a flight down to Charleston, and they admitted me and put me up, um, like, the third floor. It's like straight jackets and, you know, (laughs) rounded edges. And uh, I feel like I need to go there sometimes. Yeah, right. (laughs) And the next day I had a chance to sit down with one of the PTSD um, wizards is what I like to call my people up there, the wizards, and the, the therapist. And she said, I asked her, what do I need to do to make this stop happening? And she said, the first thing you need to do is you need to stop using all the fucking shit you're using to deal with it. And you got to deal with it. Mm. I'm like done. So, um, yeah, that was happened in 2016. And, and, and that's really where like the work had started for me that we talk about. Yeah. That's where it's not a magic pill, right? Like, Hey, it's fucking continuous. Sometimes it's great. And sometimes it sucks. Sometimes you don't want to do it, but it's important to do. Mm -hmm. Um, if you want to get better and you want to have those things kind of mitigate themselves. Um, so I got completely sober and I made a commitment to just at that point, you know, like live for myself. And, um, it was, it was really kind of like strange. It was like the time of the election. So I was like, fucking, 
I'm going to, maybe I can get an office or something in government <laughs> that can like influence things in a better yeah. direction. Um, so I just had to get a small victory and that was like, get accepted to the Citadel and check. I got that. Okay. Then like register for classes. And I was like, okay, I got that done. Like, that's good enough. And it's like, take a class and go to the class. And I'm like, okay, I got that done. And you know, I'm hitting three months of sobriety and I'm still feeling really kind of froggy from everything. And they're telling me like four or five months, six months, man, like you'll start to feel different. And that's when it really started to kind of change for me, uh, was around that time. And yeah, I went into school and I took the first semester and I graduated with four O and or you know, and then the second semester I got two more A's and then I started taking full time and started getting more A's. I'm like, holy shit, like this is what I'm capable of. I graduated like one seventy five out of like one sixty eight in an all boys school, right? Yeah. Like wasn't like or, or sorry, one sixty eight out of one seventy five. Like wasn't the brightest tool in the shed back in the high school. And um yeah, so I graduated in my master's with a four O and and maintain my sobriety. And for me, it's all about, um, living with a purpose and for people that can't live anymore. And it's like, I have, I have a responsibility because of my past to honor the men that I fought with. Sally Gannon's son doesn't get to, you know, see his dad anymore and get to go to a baseball game with him. And, you know, Matt Conley's mom doesn't get to hear him say, I love you when he calls or, you know, um, Omar's dad doesn't get to hear go to you know fishing with him or hunting or something like that and JR's sister doesn't get to have that kind of advice from her brother when she's in a bad spot and Joe's wife doesn't get to you know go on a date night so I just was like hey this is what purpose is it's not that I could go out and fucking run a marathon or you know do something spectacular but it's just like live with love and a purpose in your heart that's gonna benefit people and not fucking kill them or drag them down or do something silly so uh yeah man that's it (laughs) (laughs) like that was beautiful that was so good was that too long no it was so good um okay first of all thank you that was i mean like i could ball but i'm trying to hold i'll cry on the way home i was already like i'm gonna have to call Lindsay on the way home and cry (laughs) um so will you talk a little bit about and i don't know if you want to and you don't have to but about how what happened when you did graduate yeah yeah definitely um so when I graduated I, I was I received a um a fellowship from the State Department that President Obama put in initiative in 08 called the Veterans Innovation Program Fellowship and I was hired and during the background investigation I was uh terminated because of my arrest record and my criminal history and my personal conduct and my substance abuse um the federal government does these security clearance checks that make sure that, uh, you know, they're not hiring active addicts and stuff like that. And where my problem is, is that I mitigated all their concerns. I got a letter from Sarah and, you know, Joe, Congressman Cunningham and the VA and, and doctors and people that are, are pillars in the community that have personally witnessed my like transformation and rehabilitation process to be like, yeah, this guy's not fucking a shitbag anymore in, you know, in a certain way. Um, uh, 
like he deserves a second chance. And they came back on Memorial Day and said, yeah, sorry, your application for reconsiderations failed. And I'm like, holy shit. And what I look at, I was bitter, but like, that's why even before my past, I had like a victim's mentality, right? Like I made those fucking choices and I got to live with the responsibility and the consequences of them. And that's the bottom line. I can certainly go out and, and, and drink now because of that and be like, oh, there's no chance. But then they win. Yeah. You know, I'm not giving anybody that satisfaction, especially government. Like I've worked too hard to get where I am to like prove them right. Yeah. Right. So I guess um, like, and I think you're taking like the high road, but me personally, (laughs) I just think it's so fucked up that at 17 years old, you go to do this job and you come back and of course there's going to be like repercussions and you don't, the support wasn't there. And of course you're going to feel that way. I mean, your, your whole learning brain was to do this thing and it's in this environment. And then you come back and you rehabilitate yourself completely and you're told, no, sorry. Yeah. No, sorry. Thanks for all you, thanks for all you did, but no, sorry. Yeah. And I really just think that's disgusting. It's kind of bizarre. It's ironical. Um, yeah, I you know, like I said, the I just it sucks, man. But it's, I think you obviously have the right attitude. Uh yeah. I have like the, mo- <laughs> the mama bear attitude. I'm like, don't hurt my people. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly appreciate that. Um <clears throat> so I do want to tell one story about Greg that I love and it's a story when you came to me the studio. Oh yeah. So I was so we did this thing at my old studio at Charleston Power Yoga and it was um it was a marketing campaign or a campaign that we did, and it was called Get Really Real. And so what we did is we had these little Polaroid cameras, and we would come around and take pictures, and you would talk about like something you were getting really real about. And um, will you share the story? Yeah, and mine was, uh, I was active in my addiction at that point, and mine was, on my, and I have the Polaroid still, and it was said, off the path at times. And I knew that like that was off the path, and I fucking looked at that picture um, almost every day throughout my recovery, it sat in a place that I could see it and I knew who that guy was. And I remember thinking like, I'm doing the fucking work. I'm showing up to yoga. I don't see anything changing. My mind's not fucking right. But it was like, nah, man, you're missing it. You got to take this shit and take it, you know, into your life, not just into the room or on the mat. It's got to go into your life. You got to become part of it. And uh, when I did that, I was just like, I saw Sarah and she was a very integral part of that kind of recovery and Bethany and, you know, Alex and Maggie, I could go on and Beth and Molly, like whole crew. And um, I just wanted to share that with you, that that shit like was from two years before that yeah. and just how impactful that was. Yeah, it was. I remember when we had that conversation, it was very it's like what you said, like you have to be invested in your own, your own well-being yeah. because people come in, oh, it doesn't matter what it is, but people come in and they want results yeah. and they look at you and they don't get the results. Why am I not getting the results? Well, I can, I can bring, I can pay the rent and I can talk, but like nobody's going to put your shoes on every morning and be like, let's go do this shit. That's it, man. And like, I, like you saying that is like, that's a proud moment for me. <laughs> I mean, you did the work, but I'm going to take the glory. Fuck yeah. Hey. That's it, girl. Um, thank you so much. Cheers. No, Seriously, man. that was awesome. Whew. You guys. Okay, first of all, how much do we love Greg? 
I, I, he is such a special person in my life and I just, I hope that you guys got something out of that. I mean, what a, what an amazing man who can take the life that he has been given and hold so much personal responsibility for himself and just the person he is and he's just a really wonderful person. So again, thank you guys so, so much for listening. I hope that inspired you like it did me. And um, if you like this, please rate it, review it, subscribe, tell all your friends. We are just trying to share this realness all over the place.